Welcome to the Bike Portland podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Moss. And hey, listen to that. We've got some new theme music thanks to Brock Didis, who many of you may know as the one of the original crew members of the Sprocket podcast on whose shoulders this podcast stands. So Brock, thanks for doing that. Sounds really cool. Appreciate it. My guest this episode is William Henderson. William is the founder and former CEO of Ride Report, a company that manages micro-mobility data for cities around the world. So think of government agencies who've deployed big bike share and electric scooter fleets, and they need a system for monitoring, making sure that the companies are abiding by the permits, making sure maintenance agreements are upheld, all sorts of regulations uh, related to uh, these fleets of vehicles that are relatively new to a lot of cities. So that's what Ride Report does is provide these data dashboards to make, make their job of monitoring those fleets a lot easier. I figured it was a great time to sit down and chat with William because just last month, Ride Report was sold to Inrix, the well-established traffic data and analytics firm that ironically is most well-known for counting cars. But I first met William back in 2015 when he was just launching Ride Report, and I've watched him build the company over the past eight years and turn it into a major player that now has clients in nearly 80 cities around the world. So I really appreciate that. William has sort of like elevated the game of bike counting and just counting micromobility trips and making them matter uh, in, in, a, in a way that's going to just boost their institutional respect, which has a big impact on how cities are planned. William's perspective is informed by a mix of, of urbanism, a, a, a real love of bicycling and the benefits it brings to cities, uh, and the real-world experience from his journey as a, as a tech entrepreneur. I'll also say that he's a regular at our Wednesday bike happy hour. So that also is something that informs his perspectives, all those great conversations we have there on Wednesday nights. We recorded this interview virtually on uh, December 8th, and I think you're really going to enjoy what he has to say. Here's our conversation. Will, thanks for coming on and making some time to chat today. For sure. You have been on like uh, quite a journey in the last nine years since our first story on you in Bike Portland, I think was in 2015. Is that right? And you were just, wow. well, you looked a lot, you looked a lot different. I was you looked younger. worse. I'll, I'll say you look worse. <laughs> oh, that's nice. It <laughs> says that, Jonathan. Thank you. Now you have the, the look of a contented, wiser person. I'll just leave oh. it at that. But that story was about, well, first of all, before I get into that and the stuff with Everything you've done in the sort of like, I don't even know how to define it, what the mobility counting world, the bike counting world, uh, tech and all that other stuff. I hope you can just sort of do a little bit to introduce yourself to Bike Portlanders. Give us a little bit of context for who you are, sort of like how you ended up in Portland. I was actually born in The Hague when I was about four. My parents moved back to the States, rural New Hampshire. And yeah, I had a bike turn around the neighborhood. I had that lovely, just like... It wasn't in the suburbs, but you know, the thing you think of when you think of the suburbs where there's these quiet streets with no cars and you can just go tearing around and your parents don't even know where you are most of the day. Yeah. That was yeah. that was me. And then I got a mountain bike and, and would tear around through the woods as well when, when I was really young. And I remember like it was like my main form of independence. I never had a car. My parents never wanted me to borrow the car. So I was just like, Well, whatever, I'll bike there, even if it's thirty miles. But it, I never thought of it as like a thing, right? Until I moved yeah. to Portland. So I moved to Portland in 2003, went to Reed College, immediately fell in love with this city. 
And I think pretty soon thereafter became a Bike Portland reader. And I realized that, first of all, I was just riding my bike around. I had no idea what I was doing. I would do what everybody does when they move to Portland. You're like biking up 39th and you're like, wow, this is slightly stressful. I wonder if there's a better option. <laughs> yeah, right. Everybody but, has to go through that. A few bad, a bad route choices before you start to, it starts to click of like, oh, there's another way. Yeah. Right around that, I was like seeing bike lanes go in and I was like, this is an actual thing. And of course, was becoming aware of how connected biking is to everything, not just a thing that I like to do and a thing that brings me joy, but it's connected to climate. It's connected to a sense of community. It's connected to your relationship with the natural environment. So many things that that are sort of at the center of who I am are embodied in being on a bike. And so many things. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, but you were were like a tech guy first out of college, right? Your first... (laughs) I mean, yes and no. Your first app. I was in those days. I wasn't. I went to read to study like religion and math. Wow. Okay. (laughs) And it's a long story that I won't get into here. But like, had always sort of had a relationship with technology, but it it was always one of kind of mistrust and and love hate. Just like tech is so interesting and captivating to me as as a nerdy person but as a person who cares about the environment and is not a capitalist at heart, just it feels so wasteful and destructive and and heedless, right? It's really just kind of like, let's just go forward and not even think about the consequences. Forward is is the answer. Yeah. Um, and go even in those days, things. right, I was super, this was way before like move fast and break things, right? But that's yeah. why I didn't study it in school. But, you know, somewhere in there, I was like, well, I'm going to do this and I'll be honest, part of it was because I had a ton of debt from Reed and I was like, you know, I can probably make some money doing this and I need to pay off my loans. Um, And so I got into tech, you know, right out of college because I just sort of was like, you know, I want to, I want to do this for a while and see how it goes. And how it went was uh, I realized it's not, it's not for me. It's like this, the scene is, is, uh, there's a lot of wonderful stuff and a lot of wonderful people, and I don't want to like. It gets enough shit, right? Tech gets enough shit. It deserves it all, but it's I don't. An easy need to, target, like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're not going to add anything to your audience by <laughs> heaping more on that. But it wasn't for me, and and so Riderport was like largely born out of just a desire to unify these two parts of myself: a part that was like a bike advocate and cared about community and the environment, as well as the way that tech companies are actually run, trying to make them more inclusive, trying to make it not toxic, trying to make it thoughtful about the impact and not just sort of like going for. And, and so, yeah, what a weird thing to be in that space running like a really obscure company for several years until all of a sudden like the scooter craze happened. Yeah. And like, well, I want to, I want to get to that. I want to get to that. It started so innocently. The picture I always think of is that one with you holding the little the device. Counter. Yeah, totally. that was the first thing you did, right? Was this was this counting device, which yep. was at the time really novel, innovative, probably still is now, right? Yep. And it was this way of of not require. It was a, basically a cheap way to count bike trips, right? Totally, totally. But it also required an app to like, like have a, an uplink every once in a while to like. I sh- I shouldn't be explaining the tech. You should be, but I did. No, I did but you're doing back. a great job, Jonathan. It's like uh, not simple, and you're nailing it. <laughs> so I don't I don't want to I don't want to get too far into that. But it's like so the, so take me back to that that when you first that first little device that 
this $50 bike counter that at the time I got to say bike Portland said it would change bike planning forever. So we can, we can answer that. We can answer whether that happened later in the interview, but can you take me back to that little device and just talk to me about what was going on right then and what that device did? First of all, the way that that device was born was I just straight up was like, I want to do something here to help. And I don't know what I can do. And somebody, and I, I wish I remembered who it was, but somebody introduced me to someone at P, at Peabot and ultimately it led to a meeting with like Steve Hoyt Macbeth, shout out to Steve. And, and I was just like straight up, here's a bunch of ideas. You tell me about your problems. I'll tell you about some ideas I've had. And it led to this like sort of explosion of prototypes. Uh, I think there were several and the bike counter was the one that everybody seemed to be excited about. And so we went with that. That was how it, it started. And so it was really early that Peabot got involved. It was like at this sort of like hmm. somewhere between the con- conceptual and working prototype thing. I had no experience working with cities or any of that. Yeah. And this was like 2000, like 2014, 2015, right? Around that, around that time. So what was the, what was the, what was the problem that you and Steve, who, by the way, folks, Steve Hoyt McBeth from Peabot, right now, you think, I think he manages the Bike Town program, uh, among other things, maybe. It's hard to know. There's so much shifting of going over there with job titles. But so what was the problem that you and Steve were really trying to solve? What was the problem with bike counts that you were hoping you could help? I mean, they need to be ubiquitous, right? Like we have an insane amount of data about cars, where they go and what they do. And the the problem that I saw was like, for better or worse, and I think it's mostly for worse, uh, engineering and traffic planning and transportation as a, as a profession is all driven by like counts. Right. And so it's sort of like, you can't optimize what you don't measure. And we have like, maybe even today, like a couple dozen working bike counters and working has like an asterisk because like a lot of times they're down or they're unreliable and they only cover the sort of arterial bikeways that a lot of times are not getting the traffic that's most interesting. So you just get a really stilted picture. It's really hard to do advocacy as well. And I thought this would be a a thing I could help with. And, and of course, I got a, a fantastic response from Peabot because I think they totally understood how impactful that could be. Yeah, so... The way the way cities and even Portland, although we do have these bike counts that they do manually every year, yeah. Which I think, relative to the nation, I think it's a pretty good program. If nothing, it's it actually what hundreds and hundreds of volunteers go out with clipboards and they they physically count each bike rider. Yeah. And now they've expanded it; they count scooter users and other things like race and gender and that kind of thing. So there's that exists, and then there's this other sort of like happenstance wherever they put a little counter. Like folks may know the Cycle Oregon counter that used to be on the the like the west side of the Hawthorne Bridge, which is now like completely vandalized. I think it might even be gone at this point. It didn't mm-hmm. work for years, right? There's also a counter on the Tillicum Bridge. I'm not sure of the accuracy of that, at least in terms of d- the display. Sometimes Peabot has said, even though d- the display is wrong, it's still actually tracking in their internal servers. But yeah, it seems pretty like hit or miss compared to what we have for counting cars, which is like this robust state level system and uh, they've yep. got all these private contractors working on it and all this sort of stuff. The, I think another interesting thing about the counts, which I think people listening to this w- might go with like this percentage that always gets talked about in news headlines and stuff like that that you hear in, in advocacy circles a lot. And the percentage you hear about mode split is 
pretty much every single time related to the American community survey that the U.S. Yes. census does, <laughs> right? So that, and that census asks the question in a very specific way that is not representative of how many people are biking in the kind of trips. They ask it about how did you get to work the most in the past week or whatever, right? They don't, yep. they don't really query for like secondary trips. I read something from NACTO, National Association of City Transportation Officials, about counting bikes. And I think what they say is that uh, there's five, there's actually five bike trips for every one trip represented in the U S census, according to their analysis. Right. That so makes sense. Yeah. not a great, not a great system for counting, but you said the word like ubiquitous, you want your, your vision was kind of like, can you create a system that would, what I basically capture all of the cycling activity, right? That's what you were shooting for. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I'm going to steer the interview a little bit here. Sure. The, the, it didn't work. The short version of the story is it didn't work the way we thought it would work. Like that hardware counter ultimately got deployed in a few locations. It's a long story, but it was a lot more expensive than we wanted it to be driven mm. by like changing requirements and the actual cost to install this thing, which is oh, right. you know expensive. Yeah. But I think we subsequently found other ways to measure bikes. And we're finally at the point now, like eight years later, where... I think that original vision of, of ubiquitous counts is almost there. It's not hmm. quite, but I think we're really, really close to having something at ride report that represents the original vision. And it's, I don't want to at all undermine that work or the people that are still working to complete it. It's really important, impactful work and the original vision I, I still believe in but I don't want to talk about that today too much. We can go into it a little bit, but we've talked about bike counts so much. You have, and, and like we meaning in the community at a lot of the happy hours. And I just think we need to contain that conversation because it's not the most important conversation. And I, th- I really think one of the things that I didn't understand then, and I'm really coming to understand now is that I don't know if I want to reach for this metaphor or not. The metaphor of like, you can't unbound, unbuild the house with the master's tools. It's a, it's mm. a loaded, a loaded metaphor maybe. Okay. But the, the reason I'm reaching for is because I think like what I've come to understand is like bike counts are ultimately vehicle thinking translated into, okay, now let's apply that to bike planning. Mm, okay. And you see this, I think it's a problem I see in transit as well. Like these, like transportation planners went to school and learned a certain way of planning. And even the ones who are really, really good and challenge that they're up against an institution that thinks that way and all their processes. And so all the inertia is towards vehicle planning still. And we're just trying to take that same mentality and apply it to bikes or, or apply it to transit. Right. So like TriMet's whole thing is like, let's build big, expensive infrastructure. What does that sound like? That sounds like freeway widening, right? Right, and so that so they can get the the like volume numbers that they think are what are required for them to then compete with the car projects and with the funding. Well, they don't even deliver the volume. I don't it's know all what the volume. Yeah, interesting. I think, so you're, I think a lot of it is like a a political machine that just happens to work because it's like you get free federal money. It creates a bunch of jobs. It doesn't take anything away from the driving pop folks. I don't, I don't know if we want to label them that well, way. Well, it's, like, it's always it's always <laughs> it's always it's always additive. It's always additive exactly. to the freeway expansions, which we're not going to 
do what we need to do. We've seen time over time that that that's not working, right? Like, yeah. and it's creating these really terrible bedfellows where TriMet's probably been the largest lobby for freeway projects yeah. in Oregon, right? In our yeah, region, because it's like a package deal every time. And then yep. the the way the system is designed too is car thinking, right? So yeah. like way back when we created the suburbs and like ran freeways for our city, we're like, it's a hub and spoke. Everybody's going to go downtown in their car, they're going to work, and then they're going to go back to their homes in the suburbs. And that's the way we want our cities and our transportation systems to be laid out. You wouldn't have that without the car. And yet that's the same thing we're doing with, with mm. the Max Line, right? It all runs downtown. And it's the same way we're measuring bikes, right? So we're still thinking about the bike as can it compete with the car as a way to bring people downtown and back home on their commute. I, I don't think people actually like believe that that's the best way to measure bikes or like that it's the most impactful thing that bikes can do for our community. But that's actually how the system works because we just took car culture, car thinking and engineering, planning, all that and translated it over. And so when we say, how do we fix bike counts? How do we make bike counts more representative? It's a meaningful thing. And like, we should keep working on that. We should make sure that bike counting is at least as good as, as car counting, if not significantly better, but simultaneously we need to really step back and say, what are we really trying to do here? Right. We're not trying to compete with the car on its own merits because that doesn't work. People don't ride the max downtown when they can drive and park for free. And we could make driving more expensive and we should, but I think that's still like a really zero sum way of thinking. And we're a long way from that being popular. Yeah. And so, yeah. so, so how does that the real thing is go ahead. So how does that manifest though in, in advocacy or in policy uh, this different way of thinking about how we should quantify bike trips. Like what's, yeah. what's, a, what's a manifestation it's, of that? I can think maybe one of them is where the city does their hundreds of bike count locations. Those are probably based on the commute downtown, like you said. And so maybe those locations should be different. I think they have changed them a little bit, but so is that one way that would manifest? Like how else would this idea that you're kind of getting at here play out in, in real terms? Well, first of all, I think we need to challenge the idea that like, quantification is the place to start hmm. quantification is what you do when you've done something it's successful you've then repeated that thing and it was successful and now you're like great plug and chug we got to do it over and over and measure it so that we know it's continuing to be successful and we're doing it as efficiently as possible hmm. and i don't think that's where we are with bike advocacy today I think we have some successes that are repeated, but we're still learning how to re replicate. And when I say successes, I think of things like the Ankeny Rainbow Road. I think of things like Palooza. I think of things where like almost any Portlander would say, I want that in my neighborhood, or I'm glad that that exists in Portland. And, and, and in some way, even if I don't go to that business on Ankeny or I don't ride in that pedal palooza, right? Like that is sort of for me. I can imagine me so, or my family or my community benefiting from that. So I imagine your thinking was influenced a lot by the pandemic and the shifts in behavior that, that came with for that. For sure. For sure. Because I mean, it, I think the pandemic is 
we talk about it as being like a great accelerator, right? And so it took things that were already happening and sort of accelerated them to their logical conclusion. So like the downtown model was already dying. It was already not working. And there are still a lot of people, especially powerful people, trying to bring it back from the dead. But yeah. like, it's dead. Mm. People don't want that. And I remember the the work from home numbers were already big and impressive. And I remember hearing people around the table before the pandemic talking about, wow, that's that's a pretty sizable share. Like, let's lean into that. Right. Yeah. Because we happen to have the developmental the development patterns and and stuff that the streetcar city things that kind of like made work one of the leading cities for work from home even before the pandemic. So now it's just been like kind of cemented. I had an interesting conversation with someone who works at Eco Northwest. They do a lot of data crunching. Uh, especially around really interesting stuff, land use and transportation stuff. And he was talking about uh, a real massive shift. I think you're you're probably on the same wavelength of, which is trying to encourage the city or metro, wherever this would, would happen. But sort of like when you talk about zoning and land use, looking at like neighborhood zones and really doing doing that differently, given where people work and where people do their businesses. We, we talk about work from home as like office workers who are now working in their house. But what yep. we're also seeing, right, are people starting businesses in their homes at a rate that's just like never before been seen, not yep. just because of the pandemic shifts, but also because the internet's maturing every day, every month. And it's easier to start a business and sell things online or to sell your service online or whether you're influencer or whatever. So he was thinking like in a real like astute way with actual numbers and reports talking about how in Portland neighborhoods, you'd have like these commercial zones, not like we think of them like the thrift stores on Hawthorne or or those kind of commercial nodes, but even like more neighborhood centric places where I don't think are reflected in like metros, town centers or something like that, but even smaller ones and even more, uh, even more of them where you can do more where like that house on the corner is now actually like a, a, a more of a business and you're like encouraging more neighborhood to neighborhood connections, right? And mm-hmm. on a very small scale, which, yeah, I think is what you're talking about. Those are the kind of like conversations around bike volume or a, about trip volume that certainly in the car centered system we didn't have. And I don't think even in like the bike counting world of like advocacy, a lot of people are talking about this. They're still just trying to think of like, how do we measure all these bike trips without doing what you're doing, which is sort of like saying we need to rethink the whole entire model. So thinking about how we live and the trips we make, is that kind of what you're getting at here? Because I know everything you're everything you're doing, you're always thinking about not just like making a product to serve a niche or a need, but also like what impact does that have in a bigger way into like yeah how we live. I mean so, I can thank tech for that. It's a two it's a double edged sword, right? Yeah. But like one thing that we can take from tech as advocates and as planners is sort of like this idea that like if you're careful about how you design something and you're responsive to what people want and what they're doing you can have massive really rapid shifts and the thing that sort of drew me to that to like wanting to like apply tech to my passion of bike advocacy in the first place was like how can we get a big impact because we've been chasing incremental diminishing incremental wins for too long right so so you took bike advocacy and used tech to make it better that's that's your frame of of like the world well, I don't want to say that because bike advocacy is awesome as it is, and it's like it's it's well, a, I, not not to make it like thing. yeah, I, I'm, I'm I'm meaning more like you, Will Henderson. Like, what came first, the bike <laughs> advocacy, the bike advocacy, or the tech? Right? Bike. And I guess what I'm what I'm kind of learning by by hearing you talk a little bit more is it it really started from a, a passion for advocacy and shit and yeah, changing how cities sure. work, 
and you used your ability to make tech and make a company to kind of further that to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. And we could talk about whether that was successful and to what extent, but I think I'm, I'm really interested right now in, in the question you asked earlier. Yeah. It's almost like, it's funny because a lot of, as an engineer, I can understand how the thinking in traffic engineering becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think we have to be careful as advocates about whether we're playing into that and, and how we can challenge it directly. And yeah, it's just talking about volume. Why is volume the goal? Like, is that how we, is that the relationship we want people to have with the streets in their community? Oh, it's, it's like, I want more volume of something moving through there. Mm. Is that, or is it the, we want them to feel welcome and safe and that they have the access that they need when they need it, if they need resources. Yeah. Well, access, I don't mean to a car. I mean like to the actual things they need, right? Like they need to get their kids to school. They need to go get groceries. They need to be able to visit friends. They need green spaces. Like that's what's really meaningful to people. And like volume, traffic volume is like one way of accomplishing that. But it's sort of you're already baking in car thinking when you talk about volume. So if you don't talk about volume, even even as it has to do with bike biking, bike trips or micromobility, whatever, non-car, yeah. let's say, what do you what do you look at? Do you have to look at anything? I mean, this is kind of well, a big First of all, we have to look at greenhouse gas emissions. Like that should just be table stakes, right? And so like we're forced to do that and, and we're mostly failing to take that into account. So if we're going to have any number we're optimizing, that's the one that we should optimize. Volume be damned, right? Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I think we should we take a more qualitative approach right now because I do think we're in this phase where we, most of us, I hope, have admitted that the old way of thinking and the old paradigm is dead. Those I don't think. I don't, I don't think it, so. Will I don't. I we're don't going know. to be forced. I don't, I don't know to, about that. Yeah. Well, it's frustrating. You know, even that original story that you wrote, Jonathan, I was kind of screaming out in my mind because it was like, yeah, biking is down, transit is down, but like also driving is down more than it has ever been at least in my experience as an advocate and as a Portlander, right? It's, this is the biggest shift that we've ever seen by far, right? The thing that yeah. we said we wanted, and we're yeah. not even talking about it as a win. In fact, yeah. our mayor is out there trying to force people to get back to work and like undo that yeah. as fast as possible. Yeah. What, what are we doing? <laughs> well, I, I agree with a lot of what I think a lot of what you're saying rings true. And I love trying to look at something that we've always been thinking about a certain way and think about it differently. But let's get, I mean, get down to like the brass tacks of it. I feel like yeah. we have to fight for momentum and, and political urgency and political capital to get space on the street devoted to the stuff that's going to allow people to be safe and get where they need to go in a way that's not going to kill the planet. Yeah. And I'm just sitting here trying to think to my, trying to think to myself, given the fact that I can appreciate what you're saying about, we shouldn't sort of argue on, on the, the, the car centric terms. Yeah. But at the end of the day, how do, how are we going to demonstrate a need for something? And not everything's going to be neighborhood trips. We do still need to like get across town and some of the arterials still, we still need space on those. So like, yeah. 
So I always think, well, we got to show that there's demand. It's a numbers game, right? And I, which leads me into the thing you're saying that we shouldn't be thinking down those down those lines. Yeah. So how do we how do we do that? How do we make it so that we can have like legitimately lit lanes, right? Low impact uh, yeah. transportation lanes, which are scooters and bikes and everybody that's not in a car. If we can't demonstrate to the people, the powers that be, that we need that space. Yeah. So how do we do that? Well, first of all, I think we have to like really have an expansive notion of we we're mm. not bike advocates anymore like everyone feels insufficiently safe on our streets because everyone's a pedestrian sometimes or or they're rolling or doing something outside of a car sometimes and everybody lives somewhere and if especially if they have younger children or or older adults in their house they're concerned that's a near universal thing. Even and, among drivers, dri- driving is oh, absolutely totally, totally crazy right now. Like people are driving into buildings, people are running stop signs and hitting other drivers. Like it's, I'm scared all the time when my kids are driving around town. So yeah, it's you're right. Yeah. Everybody's feeling unsafe. So yeah, and and they're, they, I mean, they're they're not drivers all the time, right? So we need safety. That's universal. And also, I think because so many of us are now at home. Or in some ways, our life has shifted so that we don't have access to the same public spaces that we did before the pandemic. There's a pent up demand for the Agora, right? For just like a place in public where you can go and mingle or not or whatever and just be around people. Mm-hmm. And and that's not just a transportation problem. Like I think like our public spaces are really like it's sad right now. They're, they're atrophying. Right. Yeah. And so the powers that be want to talk about downtown. Oh, it's down. They're like using this old way of thinking and saying downtown, the hub, the, the heart of the city is revitalization. Is that was the big, yeah. the big word I took away from uh, Renee Gonzalez's mayoral launch speech yesterday was revitalization. That's going to be one of his main mantras. Yeah. So, which is just like such a doom and gloom mindset. Right. I uh, don't you agree though that we it would be nice to vitalize revitalize downtown. It's not a bad idea. No, I think on its, that on its face, it's not revitalize bad. assumes that the old thing should like come back to life, right? I yeah. think we should rethink it. I think mm-hmm. we should we should say to the property owners and people who are upset about their investments, look, we'll do what we can here, but our job is not to save your investment. You're probably gonna have to take a haircut or at least a short term loss. Mm-hmm. As we rethink this asset because it doesn't fit into any of our goals and it's not working and we can't force it to, right? But there are tremendous resources downtown. Lots of people live downtown and we should absolutely be like figuring out how we can leverage those resources, how we can make that downtown a better place for the people who live there. But like, let's not revitalize anything because I just worry that that language is already like, yeah, let's let's bring back the dream of the 90s or or whatever the person saying it, whatever their own personal thing that they remember the most fondly. Right. So revitalize has different connotations to depending on whose brain it's floating around in. Right? Yeah, and then sure. it gets down to trust. It's like, do you do you trust Renee Gonzalez's version of what, what what how it used to be great and bringing that back, or is it someone else's version? So yeah, but a point taken about that word and being being uh, conscious of sort of like how that's going to be framed and what what the real conversation should be. 
Yeah. And it's the doom and gloom is that we all know, like that's a fear driven mindset and that's going to be weaponized. Oh yeah, right? for sure. For sure. And so as advocates, we're not looking to push people out. We're not looking to clean up uh, people. So we should be clear on that too. But anyway, to get back to like bike advocacy, <laughs> like I think we have to like put that whole term out to pasture mm-hmm. or at least contain it. So that's not the only thing. It's not the only thing that we do. Right. And really say what we're advocating for is like safe public spaces. Exactly. And, and biking just, I feel like you don't even have to advocate for biking because like, as soon as you create public, like safe public spaces, biking is automatically included to some extent. Now, maybe there's going to be some horse trading when it gets down to the brass tacks of like, like, for example, the Rainbow Road Plaza, like you have to slow down quite a bit if you're on a bike <laughs> to go through there. And I think that's fine. But maybe if like, maybe if we're really getting into it, it's we would want to have a conversation about the trade offs there, right? Well, I talking about that specifically, some of the messages I've been getting from somebody who's mad at Bike Happy Hour because they're saying that we are blocking the road at yeah. Bike Happy Hour since we're having an event on the plaza. And I'm like, that's, that's, trying volume, to be, that's volume mindset. I know. Jonathan. I'm trying to be kind <laughs> and, you know, take the, you know, not, not just totally get upset at the person, you know, who's a bike, you know, a bike rider, like trying to get through. And I'm just they've, like, are you, are you really doing what I think you're doing? Are you really, you really have a problem with, first of all, we're not blocking it. First of all, that's, if it happened, it's like maybe one person slowed down, big deal. Yeah. But yeah, it's like what you said, it's, it's really, it's a public space thing. I, I, what you said is totally rings true to me. Uh, I'm always caught between having to use words so people know what the hell I'm talking about versus like wanting to use words that get us to a different, better place. And there's, yeah. a, there's a balance there. Uh, well, so I like we to have, say- We can't just like invent words, right? We have to like, as a community, have a Well, I mean, yeah, in terms of like saying, getting over the, the bike advocacy, just the whole phrasing, I, I, I totally agree. I like to talk about safe streets or even street culture, public space. I wish the city would lean more into that. The city meaning the the Portland Bureau of Transportation. Like I love, and they they pull it out sometimes, this framing of where they talk about how they own so much real estate in the city, Yeah, right? Totally. It's like tens totally. of thousands of whatever lane miles it is. I think that's a great way to look at it. They should see it as real estate and they're managing Absolutely. this public space instead of seeing it as like, you used to go on their website. I don't think it's like this anymore, but you'd go on the front page of Peabot's website and it would say, which are you? a motorist, a bicyclist, a pedestrian, <laughs> and you would literally have to pick. It's like, choose your experience oh, on our website. And I was like, that is the, that is the worst thing you could do is like instantly have people identify with the specific need oh, and mode. Peabot's not going to leave. I, I love the people, but as an institution, Peabot is ultimately trapped in car thinking and like yeah. a, applied car thinking when it comes to bike and transit work. So we, we as advocates, it's our job to say, to lead towards a different way of thinking. Yeah. Right. And you did that with, I I think you did a great job of that with your work product in the last decade or so creating data and tools for cities to manage these new things that we're getting uh, taken away and we're getting uh, terrible PR. And a lot of that, I think that you discovered, which is one of the, the smartest things was that people just couldn't track them. They couldn't keep up with the regs. They couldn't, deal with the privacy issues. They couldn't, they didn't even know where their scooters were or where their bike share bikes were at any one time or whatever. Yep. I mean, that's kind of what, what was the genius of ride report and, and making dashboards and sort of like standardizing a lot of that data and a lot of the work you did with your different partners around the country. 
Uh, I think it, it, at the end, there was like, or not at the end, it's still there, of course. Ride Report's still yep. a great thing. And it's like, but almost 80 cities around the country use this micro-mobility yeah. dashboard. Yeah. So you did that in, in, in that realm of like adding, adding value to that, kind of like getting people to think differently about micro-mobility, not as this, this annoying little thing that's, but, but as like an asset enough, obviously to have an asset that's like valuable, you have to like actually put some understanding and like wrap it with some analysis and just like we do with car traffic and stuff. So give that same level of like respect statistically and, and data wise to that. So what's kind of like you've, you stepped down a couple months ago, you were board chair. Now Ride Report's been sold to, ironically, Inrix, which is a, a company that's known as all the, the car motor vehicle data yep. uh, and all that stuff. So now Ride Report's folded into their offerings, which there's some really cool stuff about that. Like it's almost like achieving what you said of of making the bike numbers and the micromobility and scooter the numbers on par, let's say. So like what's what's oh, the no, next? they're they're excited partly about ride report because ride report goes like in some ways way beyond ah. what they can do for cars. Wouldn't that be funny if they so start using some of the ride report stuff to make their car yeah, data better? And we're for like, sure. no, and 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 it's a two way street. I think ride reports data set will also benefit from what NREX has, what they have. But, but you're to. I mean, I don't know if you can even answer this, but are you're comfortable that Enrix is gonna like continue to sustain Ride Report and this isn't like a GM streetcar situation. <laughs> like they're not no, gonna... they're not they're definitely not buying us to squash us. Like we're not threatening to them. Yeah. And it very much I think they understand that first of all, they wanna have more city customers. They're mostly focused at the federal and state level. Mm. And cities despite everything I just said about how cities are kind of doing applied car thinking when it comes to bike and transit, like they still really do like cities really do care about complete streets and bikes and cars. So like there's some cultural work that needs to happen within our institutions that I think needs to be led by advocacy. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the goals and the projects that they're doing and the dollars that they're spending, biking and transit are serious, especially if we get outside of Portland, most of our best customers are not in the U S and I think Portland is a great customer, but there's a lot of like up and coming cities that are also really great customers in the U.S. that have made a lot of progress rapidly. So Inrex sees that opportunity and they see that like you can't get there with like a car product, right? Mm. You have to have the complete um, package. That's good. I mean, and that's sort of an endorsement that's what you want. for the stuff yeah, we when care you're about. Yeah. <laughs> being acquired, you, you sort of want to make sure that they're not just telling you a story that sounds nice, so that like yeah. you actually believe that it's sort of a win-win where like they make you stronger, you make them stronger, and therefore who knows what happens. It's yeah. hard to predict, but but I feel really good about the alignment. Well, it's a good question. What does happen? What happens what happens next? Like for you, I mean I love I love the way you're thinking about this stuff. You've got this experience you've been through. You have the sort of like, you have the tools in your head and the way you're thinking, I think is, is right and good. It's like, have you thought much about how that could be applied? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the thing that I would, the thing that I would think would be like, you were into data before kind of data became cool, I think. Not that yeah. other people weren't, but you know. We hear, I mean, after you got into it, like, and you started, you started doing your, your counting and getting into this data stuff around 2015. And then it was like 2018, the smart city was like the big buzzword and the mm -hmm. city was grappling with issues around big data. And is it fair to everybody? And I think there were some really valid criticisms of big data and, but, but people were falling over themselves for that. 
And then I think it got quiet for a few years. I don't think you heard like the smart city nomenclature is not as strong as, as, as it used to be. Yeah. And guess what we have now? This like creep. It's like data wants to be, big data wants to be part of our lives. Like AI has sort of become like dominating the conversation. And I'm like, Will Henderson, AI, data, <laughs> oh, cities. Oh my God, there's got to be. And then you texted me this thing the other day about someone using AI to monitor air quality. Okay, trips, yeah. Or Climate trace. Thanks for bringing that up. That is so, so. Is that part of what's next in your mind? Like putting that stuff uh, all together? What do you think? Maybe, yeah. I mean, data, I think like, so one of the things I rail against is like what I call technological determinism. You see this in, in like tech thinking all the time where it's just sort of like, if it's more high tech, if it's more advanced, it's better. And also it's sort of inevitable, right? If I don't build it, someone else will. And so therefore like there's no moral responsibility when it comes to like saying no because somebody else will say yes. You see this with AI right now, right? Mm -hmm. We think AI is literally going to end the planet. And so therefore we're building AI. It's like bizarre thinking, right? But also it just like totally dodges the question of like how you build something and when is it impactful in a positive way and when is it impactful in a negative way? And so data is a perfect example. Data has all kinds of things that can be problematic around privacy, around just complexity and just like overall like missing the point, right? Like we were just saying with bike counts, bike counts are really important, also kind of missing the point, right? And so it's rare, I think, that you find a problem that data really does make a difference. I think that it is true and, and especially was true with bike counts circa 2015. But like right now, what Climate Trace is doing, and, and there's other companies and, and nonprofits doing it as well, but what they're doing with data around CO2 equivalents is a huge deal. And I just can't mm. plug it enough. So that's just a really cool example of the power of data. But, you know, I don't think it's actually like as simple as like data is powerful on its own. It's like it's contextual to what is happening right now with reporting and like the power imbalance, I think, is really what it comes down to. The only people mm -hmm. who have data before this project, you know, was the people who were doing the emissions. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not incentivized to share it. So I think the the bike counts that Pbot is going to come out with pretty soon, the ones they counted this past summer, they're going to yeah. be watched very closely just because yeah, sure. the last time we reported on that was the big decline narrative, blah, blah, blah. So there's going to be a lot of looking at that. A lot of people will be hoping, obviously, it goes up. Some people can't wait to see that it goes down so they can keep hating on bikes, blah, blah, blah. How do you think we should respond to that? Is that a time to sort of start telling them or try, trying to put out a different narrative that that these counts should be, we should look at this a different way? Uh, if they're down, I mean, what are you thinking about those counts? What do you think is a good way for the community to respond to them, regardless of if they're up or down? Well, I definitely think it's it's a yes and approach. So like, we should question it. We should lean in, like it or hate it. Like bike counts still matter when it comes to getting things done and getting funding and all that. But like, that shouldn't be the end of our effort. And it might not even be the best thing to be like focused on as our main effort, mm -hmm. right? Because I just don't think it's a winning battle. Like mm. we should still show up and fight for every inch, but like we're losing ground, you know, at best we're sort of treading water. I don't think we're getting better bike infrastructure. We're certainly not seeing a decline in like traffic violence. 
we're not seeing a decline in greenhouse gas emissions. Like none of the needles are going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing that I think about as an advocate is like, what's the public sentiment? Is this becoming a more popular thing? Is it like abortion or gun control where like the powers that be don't want it to happen, but like it's actually like most people want this to happen and we mm. just need to advocate like hell or do we need to change how, like wh- who we're including in the conversation, the language we're using so that we can make it more of a universal issue. And that's where I think we are with bike counts, right? We mm. need to start finding a way to have a campaign and it might not have a lot of data at first, but it doesn't mean it can't be really rigorous and impactful, right? Where we talk about the need for public spaces, the appetite mm. for public spaces, the impact of the relatively small number of public spaces that we have created, and the hunger for there to be more of those. And we got to be willing to check some of our own assumptions at the door in terms of like what we have to do and the language we have to use in order to create that conversation. So as an example of that, I think you and I have talked about this offline, but I think we got to get a lot more comfortable talking about car parking um, when it comes to engaging with businesses because love it or hate it. Like most businesses believe rightly or wrongly that car parking is sort of essential to their operations, right? Whether that's their staff getting there or deliveries getting easily fulfilled or their customers showing up to buy things, right? They're very like reflexively defensive when something comes in and says, we're going to take your car parking, right? Yeah. And to me, I'm like, as an advocate, I often like, oh, well, car parking is terrible. It's a fertility drug for cars, all that, right? Moving cars are a lot more threatening than a parked car, right? Parked car is kind of compatible with a public safe space. Moving cars, mostly not compatible, Right. Yeah. So I think if we are down to the wire and we were saying, hey, Jonathan, yes or no, let's like turn a lane of travel on Sandy Boulevard into additional car parking. I think we should vote yes on that. Right. Right. It's going to make Sandy safer. And it's probably going to get a lot of the businesses that would otherwise be against it, at least interested. And then it's like, well, what else can we do? Right. What else can we do if we're like, we're not leading with the car parking, but if that becomes a conversation that we're now willing to have because the guiding principle is here, let's create public spaces that are safe, welcome, um, that serve the, the big stakeholders around, meaning the neighbors and the businesses that are sort of critical to the success. We have to get their buy-in. And like at the end of the day, like, that's going to be a, a compromise driven decision, not compromise. Like in the sense that you and I are sense of though, like, yeah, let's do some freeway widening and then add a bike lane on the side. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but there might be some things that we normally wouldn't consider. And I think car parking is a good example. Hmm. Another good example is just like, does it have to be protected bike infrastructure? Like I think some of the safest infrastructure in Portland is still the greenways and they're not perfect. Yeah. But you know, well- <laughs> Yeah, I think the I think the call for protection is direct result of people's just fear and if you bring that fear level down in other ways the the demand for protection all the time will also go down. And it's expensive and it takes a lot of space and it, it ultimately yeah. is just like it's annoying because we're advocating for what is called bike infrastructure but it's actually just car mitigation infrastructure. Right. 
And if you don't have the cars, you don't need the infrastructure. Right. But this is this is the tricky thing about getting this advocacy conversations right. It's like this, the staging of it and like what what parts of it come first and who's willing to compromise and, you know, what that means to the overall conversation as you make those compromises. Like I've I've also advocated in the past for I mean, not very strong. I think I wrote like an op-ed years ago when the whole apartments with no parking thing became a huge yeah. controversy. Yep. I was like saying we need to actually talk to the developers and encourage them to figure the parking situation out. And like in terms of like, let's let's make them have to solve this parking problem and not say it's not realistic to say you can't have a car or whatever. People have cars. We got to figure out what to do with them. Right. And this yeah. controversy is like really making things difficult. So like, let's tell the developers they got to dig big holes or create shuttle systems or something in the meantime. But my thinking was always like one of the reasons I took that stand is because I didn't think the city did a good enough job making alternatives. And it's like, what well, comes they, first? They didn't. They just set you know? up a big game of chicken. Yeah. I think that's where Portland is on a lot of issues right now. Not yeah. understanding and not appreciating what it takes to do the politics and programs and policies to like see some of these ideas through and not appreciating what the backlash means mm-hmm. to your ultimate goals. And I mean, yeah. that's kind of what like Brene Gonzalez was saying the other day was that some of these things that we've done maybe weren't the best things to do and we need to sort of like correct or at least look in the mirror and correct some of these faults instead of always acting like we know best and we're going to just do some innovative thing. So I think there's some alignment there in that idea, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of work cut out, but I do think it's a time. It is a good time. It feels like to me a time for, for Portland and like advocates in the city that care about this stuff to really like think of these bigger conversations. Like how do we reassess? What's the best way to frame this stuff? Business as usual is not really going super great. And I think you've also outlined a lot of work that you could do in the future. So I know you're not, you're not looking to jump into anything, but uh, not quite yet. Not I can tell yet. you've got some, you've just got some really good ideas and I appreciate you. Oh, thank you know, you. Well, a lot of these are not my ideas. I, I should, I wish I could give footnotes or something because I feel like these ideas come from conversations at the happy hour and, and with you and, and other folks in the community. So yeah, I feel like I'm just, a cheerleader for the most part cool but I would, sooner or later i'll get back in the trenches as well <laughs> awesome well i appreciate the conversation william yeah thanks for having good luck me. and i'll i'll see you uh see you at happy hour yeah i'll be there cool thanks bye that was the founder and former ceo of ride report william henderson As always, thanks for listening. I really appreciate your support. If you're not a paid subscriber of Bike Portland yet, you should definitely do that soon. Bike Portland is community journalism that relies on the community to survive. So thank you for your support of our work. This podcast is a production of Pedaltown Media Incorporated. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Mm